Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at CalEndow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. On today's show, how CSU Bakersfield is working with local school districts to recruit black teachers as a way to improve outcomes for black students. And pride celebrations continue this weekend in Fresno's Tower District with a performance of dance and spoken word. But first, some station news. Valley Edition is going on hiatus, at least for the summer, as the KVPR news team works to develop the best ways to deliver our award-winning content to new and larger audiences. Our last show will air next week, and meanwhile, we're going to revisit some of our favorite feature stories from the last year, starting with one from Belize, where Fresno-based writer Diana Markham's second travel memoir, Fallen Stones, is set. KVPR's news director, Alice Daniel, visited Markham in Belize in 2020 to get a window into her experience, right before COVID-19 shut everything down. The story recently won an Edward R. Murrow Regional Award for Excellence in Writing, and you're about to see why. Before we get to Belize, let me tell you a story about how Diana and I met 16 years ago back when she was a reporter for the Fresno Bee. It starts with my son Atticus, who was four at the time. One day, he and his babysitter were at a thrift store called La Tienda in our neighborhood. He had parked his red flyer tricycle at the entrance, and while he was looking at books in the back, a volunteer sold the trike. Later that day, I left a note on La Tienda's front door describing the incident in hopes of finding clues to the sale. Diana saw the note and interviewed us for a feature story. As a reporter myself, I noticed she didn't take many notes, and she did a lot of observing. It was a little unsettling. Days later, the story was published a beautiful vignette of the Tower District community and the inadvertent sale of a beloved trike, which, thanks to her story, we got back. I mention this because I've always been impressed by the way Diana reports and writes. Now an L.A. Times reporter, she won a Pulitzer Prize in feature writing in 2015 for her coverage of the drought, and her first travel memoir was about the Azores and its relationship to the San Joaquin Valley. So when she was in Belize reporting on her new book, I decided to witness her experience there, to report on the reporter so that I could share her story with you. So here we go. We start our story about a month into Diana's stay. We're en route to a house that's on a butterfly farm in the middle of a rainforest. Okay, here we're, here's where we come up to our turn off to fallen stones. Diana's partner, Mark Cross, or simply Cross as she refers to him, is driving the Jeep on a steep dirt road that was built by hand. Uh, this is where I stop and put it into four-wheel drive, so hang on to your hats. Until Diana and Cross moved into the house on stilts, she says no one had lived in it for years. No one except... A lot of creatures that had made it home. Such as? Well, all the ones that I guess are still making it home, but there were more of them. So what was your first impression? <laughs> she says, aside from scorpions, there were also a number of bats hanging on the walls. Now I'm beginning to wonder. I'm going to be sleeping with bats? No, no, they're not in the house. They're on the porch. Okay. Yeah, but they're, they're on the part of the porch. The house was built 30 years ago and belongs to an are Englishman, Clive Farrell plays an instrumental role in Diana's book. Clive loves nature, particularly butterflies. He and his business partner lived in the house while they started Fallen Stones. Now we're getting up to the steep part. Diana and Cross first traveled this road in 2018 while on vacation. They were staying at an eco-lodge, 
and one of the guest activities was a trip to Clive's butterfly farm. It didn't start out well. Diana was in the back seat of a truck, kind of like I am now, and she was thinking she was not the explorer type. This is not for me, right? But then... Then we got up and we got to the top and, you know, I came out of the car and I was just like... <gasps> I have to say, I had the same reaction. Yeah, we're here. Wow! The vista is amazing. <gasps> Solid rainforest for miles, no roads, Guatemala somewhere in the distance. Pretty amazing, huh? And from here, we walk down a flight of stone stairs winding through the jungle. Diana's counted 159 steps. The stones, she's been told, are from a nearby Maya ruin. They got them from Lubatun. This is ancient Maya ruins that we walked down to go to the house. It's not surprising. There are Maya ruins all over Belize. Even the church in the nearby village of San Pedro, Colombia, is built from stones found at Lubatun. Just always kind of look where you step. There was a giant tarantula the other night. 159 steps later, we're at the house and walking up the stairs to the covered porch. Here's where the bats live. But I mean, they, they sleep in the day and they leave at night, so whoa! <laughs> what, why'd you say whoa? It, it went over your head, sorry. <laughs> so what led Diana to share a house on stilts with bats and scorpions? The answer is just a quick trek down a dirt path that winds like a ribbon to the butterflies. Listen to this. Wait, let me amplify it. it. Sounds a bit like rain, doesn't it? Or maybe fire? My mic is right next to the flapping of blue morpho butterfly wings inside a flight cage. And see how they flash? There have even been reports like from bush pilots that were flying over the jungle canopy that they could see the flash of them. The flash of their wings, it's kind of like a daytime disco inside this cage. The blue is so metallic. On the edges of the wings are rows of black dots Two rows means it's a female, one a male. Many of the offspring here will be sent as pupae to Clive's butterfly exhibit in England. It's also where they repackage some of them and send them to zoos and museums all over the world. But these connections around the globe begin in this cage. You start with eggs. That's Marcellinus Scholl, another character in Diana's book. Every day, he and about a dozen other employees walk or push their bikes up that steep road we were on to get here from San Pedro, Colombia. You can see the, the butterfly, a female butterfly laying the eggs you see over there. He points out a leaf where a butterfly has just pushed out an egg. Beyond it are many more. They look like gelatinous raindrops, perfect tiny translucent globes on a sea of bright green. Every evening, Marcellinus collects the eggs in handmade wooden boxes and carries them into a small wooden hut on stilts about 20 feet away. There they hatch into caterpillars and nine weeks later become pupae. The pupae that don't get mailed to England are returned to the flight cage where they emerge as butterflies. They hang from sticks in tidy, neat rows. Every day we have them hatching. The ones that hatch in here will breed and feed on old fruit piled high. They go to rotten fruits like pineapple, bananas, like mangoes. They like to go to the juices. Smelly juices that belie their winged beauty. But it's not just this global enterprise in the middle of a rainforest that caught Diana's interest. It's the fact that it has survived so long. In 2001, the farm was hit by Hurricane Iris. Shortly thereafter, wildfires destroyed what the hurricane had missed. It took years, but the farm was rebuilt. These natural disasters are something Diana understands. I don't want to be somebody that plays the same card over and over and over again, but I am from California, and I did live through the drought, and I did see, as a journalist, incredible fires over and over and over 
but it's also just the beauty of this little butterfly farm that protects wildlife and gives conservation jobs to Maya villagers who take such care and precision, shepherding butterflies from eggs to caterpillars to pupae. She's the radio reporter I told you about, yeah. which is why she has the weird thing on her head. Yeah. <laughs> what is your name? Anselmo. Like Anselmo Ikel, who feeds the caterpillars that have hatched from the blue morpho eggs. Right now, he's dumping a lot of poop out of the boxes. Well, in this stage, the big ones, it's almost like a pong. Yeah, overnight. <laughs> Some are almost to the pupae stage, which takes about two months. As you can see here, this one already made a silk. And in two to three days' time, it will become a pupa. On my last day at Fallen Stones, I asked Diana about how she's reporting and organizing her book. She says her writing strategy now comes straight out of Birds of Belize by Lee Jones. The first chapter says, when you're looking at a bird, don't write anything down. The minute that you look down at a paper or, or start writing down what you're seeing, you're losing time of looking at that bird. You know, you just have this one precious fleeting moment to observe. And then you can go back and write it down and research it later. And I was like, oh, obviously. For KVPR, I'm Alice Daniel in Belize. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. We're replaying some of our favorite stories from the past year. Back in February, Tulare was the host to the World Ag Expo. And with a thousand exhibitors and more than a hundred thousand attendees, it's no surprise that it was noisy. This year, more than ever, those loud crowds were drawn to robots. KVPR's Carrie Klein took a look at the growing intersection between ag and tech. Right near the 35-foot-tall wind machine, between the Toyota Tundra hoisted 100 feet in the air and the peach cobbler stand, an orange robot about the size of a refrigerator has gathered an audience. Oh my gosh, it's, this has been awesome. I mean, the people on the street just stop and stare, like, what is this thing? That's Anna Haldewang, CEO and founder of Insight Track. And their self-driving rover has been programmed to shoot mummies. Yes, mummies. And so what is a mummy? So during the almond harvest, not every almond For the uninitiated, like myself, mummies are the carcasses of almonds that were never harvested. Left on the tree, they shrivel and turn brown. And if they're not removed, pests like the navel orange worm can burrow in and invade. So Insight Track's mummy remover rolls through the orchard, and like a tiny orange combat tank, little turrets shoot the mummies right out of the tree using biodegradable pellets. So we've trained it through thousands and thousands of images to identify what a mummy is and what it isn't. So we have depth sensing cameras on it that are able to accurately shoot those mummies. The mummy remover's key technology isn't radar or lidar, but computer vision. It's a form of artificial intelligence in which computers use cameras to interpret the visual world. It's the same technology used by the Israeli company Tevel Aerobotics. At Tevel's booth, a pair of bright blue boxes are hovering over the ground and plucking candy red apples off a tree. Despite what they look and sound like, Moshe Porat says they are definitely not drones. We are not developing a drone, we are developing uh, something called FAR. It's flying autonomous robots. They're FARs, or F-A-R-S. Parat is a marketing exec with Tevel, and he says unlike drones, their FARs don't need operators. They've been programmed to spot a ripe apple, extend a robotic arm equipped with a suction cup, and grab it, then drop it gently into a bin on another autonomous vehicle. No humans necessary. You don't need to be a pilot, you don't need to be familiar with drones, nothing is for dummies, so-called. So far, they've programmed FARs to pick apples, stone fruit, and citrus. Autonomous vehicles seem to lurk in every corner here. There's also the laser reader, a Zamboni-like machine that zaps weeds with lasers, and Gus, a sleek steel vehicle, almost like a Tesla truck, that sprays pesticides along a programmed route. It honks at the end of every row. 
The sheer number of products was a surprise even to Marcus Herrera, who led a seminar at the expo on autonomous functions in ag. I caught up with him after hours via Zoom. It's shocking. I thought that I knew of most of it, and then I just got blown away with so many more products and, and systems and features that are being showed. Herrera is a sales application engineer with a manufacturing company called Hydac, and he says these products have tons of potential. Just in terms of productivity, it's huge. And then also in terms of safety, the more and more our machines are getting smart and helping us with our job, you know, the more we can focus on other things possibly that are going on around us. Many of these products aim to solve the problem of labor shortages. Data from the USDA shows the number of farm workers has declined 20% in the last two decades, a challenge growers are increasingly reporting during the pandemic. But while this new technology may help farmers, it could harm farm workers by taking away their jobs. With the average minimum wage cost going up and the amount of work that that takes, all these features are saving the farmer money by not having to hire other hands to do work for them. But there is at least one product at the expo that aims to help farm workers. It's a so-called collaborative robot named Burro. Yes, the Spanish word for donkey. In principle, this product is it's, it's Disney's Wally for agriculture in a 1.0 format. That's Charlie Anderson, the CEO of Burrow. It's essentially a self-driving table that tags along in the fields. Workers can stack their trays of fruit on it, and it can be set to follow people or travel between them. So like if it loses somebody or if somebody walks away for a second, it's kind of like a good dog, it's grabbing the next person. And rather than replace people, Burroughs' strategy to ease labor shortages is to make the job less onerous. Though Anderson argues it can also increase productivity. It saves farm workers the trouble of pushing a cart or wheelbarrow by hand, and it can hold more weight. Plus, the robot's touchscreen? Entirely in Spanish. As for whether any of these products could be game changers, Marcus Herrera says only time will tell. But he says it sure is an exciting time. For Valley Public Radio, I'm Carrie Klein. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Staying with some of our favorite stories from the last year or so, here's one from KVPR reporter Sarith Hawk. It's a profile of a family-owned business that pivoted to a more stable venture during the worst of the pandemic. It first aired in April of 2021. At so-and-so alterations in North Fresno, the steady thrum of mechanized needles is a good sign. It means business is finally starting to pick back up again. Owner Patrick Tran points out several machines that are used to make alterations. And those three are overlock machines where after you cut it, you overlock so it doesn't fray. His family owns two more stores in the area. Tran says he learned the trade from his parents who met in Vietnam. My mom and dad, they meet each other um, through learning uh, how to sew, same class. Sewing helped his parents survive. It was a lifeline when they fled their homeland after the Vietnam War. When we escaped Vietnam, well, we went to Thailand, that's when they start using their skill. You know, so um, we, we have been sewing ever since. Once the family settled as refugees in Fresno, they started sewing in their home, making hand-tailored garments for the local Asian community. They had so many customers that they were able to open their first business 37 years ago. At that time, Tran was 10 years old, and eventually, he learned the trade. During high school, uh, I would come and help uh, my, my parents, uh, doing very simple stuff, and then gradually doing uh, more difficult things. Tran walks to the back of the small, narrow shop past his wife, Mai, who is stitching together a white dress shirt. He and Mai have run this store for 20 years. Three other family members work here, relatives that Tran sponsored from Vietnam. Tran points to another machine. And then that one is a double stitch where you sewed it on um, like a t-shirt, something stretch. After clothes are tailored, they're steamed and pressed. Today, his sister-in-law stands at the ironing counter, making perfect creases on a pair of pants. But this past year during the pandemic, 
the shop wasn't this noisy. No party, no wedding, no school. So most of our alteration is based on uh, those events. So we have no, uh, no, no, um, no customer. Tran says he was forced to shut down for a short time. He thought the lockdown was only going to last for a couple of weeks. Any longer than that, and he knew he was going to have to use his savings to pay bills. After one week, uh, we start have nothing to do. So we see a, a lot of uh, people on the news that elderly that doesn't have any masks. So we start making masks and uh, giving out to senior citizens. Some of those senior citizens receiving free masks were at a nursing home where one of the relatives of a resident happened to work for the city of Fresno. They heard about the masks and tracked down Tran's shop. After approving the design of the masks, Tran was awarded a contract to make them for city crews. So that keep us uh, by for several months. And then they placed the second order, so that helped us, you know, complete the whole year. And the store is still making them. On this day, trans relatives sit at their sewing machines, busily stitching together face masks. The masks come in several sizes, diverse colors and designs that include sports logos and cartoon characters. After they're sewn together, each mask is bagged in plastic and labeled for sale. The mask kind of help us kind of balance our business. Actually, help us a lot. <laughs> I think you're more like a small. Tran sifts through a pile of face masks and says as much as 60% of his business last year was due to this product alone. This addition to his business has attracted new customers. People start noticing uh, uh, how our mask fit and feel. Uh, so they, they keep coming in. <laughs> and as restrictions have eased, Tran says he's also relieved to see regular customers return to his shop. People have been coming here for like 19, 20 years, and even their kids, their grandkids, you know. So we have a lot of loyal customers here. The year has been tough, Tran says, but with new and old customers, the family is piecing together a steady recovery. For KVPR News, I'm Sarith Hawk. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. The California Department of Education released a report earlier this year that found that black male students are less likely to drop out and more likely to attend a university if they have black teachers. It's research like that that led CSU Bakersfield to develop a teaching residency program designed to increase the number of black teachers in public schools. To learn more about it, I spoke with Dr. Bree Evans-Santiago, Chair and Assistant Professor of Teacher Education at CSU Bakersfield. Can you explain why it is so important for teachers, particularly in K-12, to represent a diversity of, of backgrounds and identities? Absolutely. So when we look back and think about just the historical impact that education has had um, throughout our system, students of color are often marginalized or underrepresented in various aspects within their educational pathways. And because of that, they're often overlooked, right? Or we have an overrepresentation of African-American students that are expelled or suspended even before they reach high school. Um, we look at the school to prison pipeline and most often those are students of color on these pathways of not successfully passing math and reading at um, the same rate as white children or as the considered majority or what have you within education. And so we look at those opportunity gaps. So our students of color are not only always trying to dig to stay afloat, but they are often overlooked. And so it's been historically proven, you know, throughout time that we can see that this occurs in education. And so in order for our students to be able to succeed, Research has shown that our students of color feel confident and comfortable and understood 
when there are teachers that come from their cultures or where there are teachers that look like them or represent them in various aspects, whatever that may be. And oftentimes it could be having a teacher of color. And so that's been a big progressive space that we're trying to um, move toward and continue. And we, we want to be intentional, right? We want to be intentional when, when making these efforts because we have seen that it works. We know that it works and we want to provide more opportunities for students of color as they progress through their educational pathways. You know, I have to say this line of research is really personal for me. You know, growing up, I didn't have many teachers who looked like me. And it wasn't until I was in the fifth grade, it was Mrs. Bennett. She was this beautiful black woman. And it was such a significant moment in my educational history, having a teacher who looked like me and and seeing my possibilities in her. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the same experience for me. I actually had one black woman teacher twice for first grade and for fourth grade. And during that time, that was my only experience until I was in my doctoral program. So I get it. I get it. And it's unfortunate and it's hard because we don't see people like us, but I remember her. I remember her very well, Mrs. Smith, I'll, you know, when she was from the South and we were able to relate and like her funny sayings, you know, my family's from Louisiana. And so I connected with her and it felt so good, you know, to have that experience. Absolutely. So that brings us to the Black Educator Teacher Residency. Tell us about how this program works. So it's a one-year program. And within that time, we have students that are actually out in the field through an application process. We have partners and we work together. When I say partners, our districts, right? And within that space, we work on joint selection, selecting the residents, selecting the mentors that will support them throughout this year process. Within that year, this residency specifically starts in the spring and it goes to the fall. So it's for one full year. So from January 22 to December 22 will be our first cohort completion. And during that time, they get over a thousand hours of experience in the field. So with residencies, It's considered emulating a medical field residency. Of course, it's a different field of work, so it looks different, but at the same time, the residents are there. They're there from beginning to end. They follow, they watch, they emulate, they practice, or whatever they can do to learn and to dig in. And during that time, the district actually pays for them to have a living stipend, and that could be covered for their tuition or just to stay afloat as they're in this program, because it is very rigorous and takes a lot of their time. And so within this program, they're able to receive a little bit of funding, but then also be in the classroom three full days out of the week, one day of courses, one day of coursework, which are virtual. So the courses are all virtual. So that's how we're able to collaborate with Los Angeles County, as well as Kern County with this residency. And then they have the opportunity to do classwork or substitute, you know, one day a week as well. So we try to provide those opportunities for them. What makes this residency special, we have five. So this is just one of five of our residencies. And this residency is special, not only because it's the virtual model. So that helps our candidates or our residents out in Antelope Valley to be a part of this program for the first time. We also are amplifying Afrocentric curriculum. We want the students of color to have a voice. We want African-American children to be empowered and to be understood and recognized and learned about within our program. So then that way, when those teachers go out in the field, they know and understand our Black children. And that's really important to us. So a part of this residency, and it is for Black educators and allies. Our cohort makes up a variety of different races and ethnicities, and that's important to us because it's not just one person in the classroom. We value all teachers, and because of that, we still want these teachers to learn and understand our Black children, and so we're able to take those perspectives and put them together for this residency. Okay, so I have to acknowledge the fact that you are launching this, or you have launched this residency program at a time when there is 
significant backlash against, you know, just doing things like teaching accurate history. Um, you're also doing this in a historically pretty conservative community. So <laughs> I, I wonder what kind of feedback have you gotten given the sort of state of politics right now? Well, I don't know if you have heard, but I was one of the people that were discussed. I was an item on the agenda for this district that we actually work with. <laughs> um, you personally? While, yes, a while back. And so there is backlash. We have parents that speak out, that come to board meetings, that say that this isn't what should be taught right now or what have you in general. But when it came to this, I think what is winning people over, what people are seeing is that one, research speaks for itself, you know, but two, when they saw that we were not excluding anyone and when they saw our cohort of various ethnicities and lots of different people that want to make a difference in their district, I think it kind of lightened up the load a little bit. I also think that at this time, I've attended a lot of board meetings lately because of this topic to just present it and to get it approved. And all districts are on board. We have Lancaster, we have Palmdale and Panama Buena Vista, and they're all on board. All of the boards have voted and approved and are paying our, our residents. But I think presently there are different concerns in our communities. And right now the concern is still COVID immunizations, masks, you know, and that type of thing. So I think it's kind of pushed ours to the side for a moment, not saying it's going to go away. <laughs> I don't think it'll go away, but I think that um, there are different topics that are at the, the forefront right now, which gives us time to continue our work, to be able to show research and evidence that our students are being reached in various aspects. And I think that um, as long as we have strong partnerships, as long as we can present our information in ways that people understand and, and learn from and support, I think it can work. It's hard. It's not easy. And I have absolutely had to endure backlash because of some of this work that we do. And that's a side note. I do professional development outside of this. So it is different. I want to emphasize that. So the Black Educator Teacher Residency has not received the backlash that I personally received, but I'm still there. And so I was nervous about that. I was surprised that it was still a go <laughs> because sure, yeah. you know, of what they felt previous to that, but it's been okay. And we were working on this together. As long as we have, again, the partnerships with the districts, we have people that believe in the work. We have people that are willing to stand up against those that don't you know, or those that want to fight back. And I think it's a learning process. I really believe that at times um, we fight when we don't know, um, when there's the lack of experience or lack of knowledge in different areas, we, you know, we go based on what we know. And I think that this is opening eyes, it's opening ears, it's teaching. And I, and I hope that they'll see the, the data, they'll see that our students are improving and feeling more confident and being more successful because of what we're able to bring to our community, hopefully. <laughs> you know, I, I'd like to talk about some of those other challenges that you mentioned. So many of the issues facing America are playing out in our classrooms. Yes. And, you know, you are in a unique position as the, you know, chair of CSU Bakersfield's teacher education program. I have to imagine it is a, there must be some very interesting conversations taking place among uh, those who are entering this profession at a time of, you know, continued concern over COVID at a time of the, the lack of action around uh, the prevalence of school shootings. Can you just unpack a little bit of, of what your world looks like right now? Kathleen, it's hard. It's, um, you know, I carry the burden for, for our faculty. Like I feel it, you know, I empathize and, and I'm a part of this space too. And our, our teachers have experienced probably the most they've ever experienced in their lives regarding um, pain, you know, losing people, regarding um, being worried to even work. Like we as teachers should not be scared to go to work. 
And that happened. I can just jump in. You know, not only should teachers not be afraid to go to work, but think about how much that fear must impact their ability to be there for their kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's hard to be all in when you have so much fear or when you're nervous and, you know, I, teachers are the best at, um, acting, right? I think that we need as many golden globes and, you know, a Tony's as everyone else. Like we are out there every day, putting on a front, smiling in the midst of turmoil, um, cuddling, coddling, um, teaching, uh, you know, trying to be that extra love, support, space, care that they need when they're experiencing so much trauma, the students are experiencing so much trauma on their own. And then we add all of these extra layers. Um, but yet, you know, we have someone that passes away, but we have to still go in there and, and smile and, and, and protect and teach and, and all of that. And of course, we're going to be the ones laying and, and blocking and protecting our students when bullets are flying. Of course we are. It's who we are by nature. And, um, you know, it's, it's scary. And it's, I think it's, it's a place that no one has ever experienced before, you know, cause it's just one yeah. thing after another one, you know, and just piling and piling. And I just, if you could imagine probably something like, you know, just carrying, you know, water pills up a hill. And then it's just like, it keeps raining or something. And those, those buckets keep filling up. Right. It's like, it doesn't ever dry out. It's like continuous and more. And, um, I think that the resiliency within us, within educators and within this space, within our teacher ed program, we built this, this residency during the pandemic. We're saying, you know, let's bring light of this situation and learn what we can do while we can do it. Right. Um, right. Right. You know, now we have a virtual residency. We haven't had that before. So because of the space that we're in, we're like, oh, look what else we can do. So it's like digging from the depths of our soul to still pull forward and to push and to bring a positive light is who we are and what we can do, you know, currently. So I think that, you know, even in the midst of turmoil, you know, there's still the sun, there's still space for us to be okay, but we have to work together and we have to have each other in that, or it just won't happen, you know? Yeah, completely. Well, let's, let's stay in the sun as we close out this (laughs) conversation. As you think about the future of public education in California, what are you most optimistic about? Mm, I'm hoping that we'll continue to invest in residencies. I think people are seeing nationally what the investment, financial resources, um, and, you know, even human capital to, to get the job done. I think that we are working in that direction, and that's very positive. I am very grateful for the CTC, for the, the teacher credentialing for California, how we have, um, you know, eliminated some of the the testing that is needed. Those have been barriers for our students for so long. Um, We have great teachers, but a lot of them have test anxiety. A lot of them come from um, a space where language may not be their first language or they're multilingual. And so these, you know, paper tests, these computerized tests limit and hinder their growth or their opportunity to move forward. And now, Um, we've removed a lot of those barriers. So I'm very grateful for that. So I think policy is changing here, you know, and we even have like, um, Secretary Thurman was like very involved and supportive of our program, even was a guest speaker here with us um, to to talk about education and the importance of having African-American males in education. And um, I think that there is hope. I think that people are in California are, talking and we're working together we're we're sharing and presenting and i think that's you know again through pandemic we have had a lot of virtual meetings we've had a lot of collaborative opportunities that we wouldn't have had before and so if anything maybe it's teaching us um, other ways to reach each other and um, to help one another and and hopefully invest in education more it's needed and 
we need that that love and support because um what we do is immeasurable and um yeah so i do i do see some some growth in california even in the past you know three to five years well, that's, that's really, really good to hear because you're right. What you do, the impact of your work is immeasurable and the future of our state and our nation uh, depends on it. So thank you for everything that you do. I've been talking to Dr. Bree Evans-Santiago, Chair and Assistant Professor of CSUB Teacher Education. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And finally, the celebration of Pride Month continues Saturday evening in Fresno's Tower District with the show True Colors, a dance and expression exploration. Hosted by the Labyrinth Art Collective, the show takes audiences on a journey of movement and words through each of the colors on the rainbow flag. To learn more, I spoke with organizers Alicia Rodriguez and Silvana Celeste. Alicia, to start, tell me a little bit about this um, art collective and how it came about. Well, it came about a few years ago and I would do live art events. So they would kind of be focused around um, artists participation. So I'd set up different rooms with different media and um, performance art, kind of just a hodgepodge of weird stuff, if you want to put it technically. Um, and then of course, you know, COVID came around uh, and everything stopped. So kind of lulled for a couple years. And then um, we stumbled on the space that was the Fresno, the old Fresno SoCo, if anybody's familiar with that in the Tower District. Um, they used to host rogue shows and whatnot um, and other theater um, types of events. Um, so my partner stumbled on it, my partner Matt, me and him run the space and um, we jumped on it. You know, the last couple of years have been hard, um, especially in the Tower District. I mean, all over the world, of course, but in Tower, we've done, we've had some struggles of our own, um, especially in regards to the arts, arts, arts and queer communities. And so we just saw an opportunity to make some hopefully cool things happen in our neighborhood. And um, we just went with it. So we, we took the name of my old um, events, which was the Labyrinth Art Collective, <laughs> and, and started to, you know, maybe see how we can expand um, not only the type of events we host, but also, you know, just create a space um, for the community to come and make art, whether it's performance art, visual art, whatnot. We host art hops and, and whatnot. So it, it, it really is just the expansion of a community-based art event and idea, so. Very cool. So I understand that you have teamed up with Sylvana Celeste uh, for an event this weekend. Uh, Sylvana, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I met Alicia because she, um, she came to some of my dance classes um, back in the day, pre-pandemic, I was teaching uh, uh, fusion belly dance classes, and she came and was just a super cool person, and we hit it off and um, kind of formed a friendship, and um, the pandemic happened, and dance classes stopped, as did much of the rest of life. And then we reconnected um, as I was uh, reaching out to some former students, just asking if people were feeling safe enough to do some small classes again um, and letting people know that, you know, I hadn't really been out in the world in a couple of years and asking for leads on um, venues and dance studios. And Alicia said, well, hey, as it happens, <laughs> my partner Matt and I just jumped on this place. And um, yeah, so we reconnected and um, I put together a small show just for my students to kind of come and check out the space and feel out the energy. And it was wonderful, we love it there. And so um, I let her know that I really was interested in helping support um, the venue and her vision for like a safe creative space and tower. And that led us to brainstorming on this show, which is gonna be, um, we put it together to uh, coincide with Pride Month and it's gonna be a celebration of love and healing and humanity and colors. <laughs> and um, yeah, and we're just really excited to, to do it. So that's kind of the story how, of how that came together. Alicia, do you wanna say more about what folks could expect this weekend? So, I mean, we're, we're 
really proud. I mean, <laughs> of course, no pun intended, pun intended maybe. Um, that we're folk, we're really featuring all local performers and artists, um, and it's a very it's a variety of types of performances. So there's a it's it's, it's heavily dance um, geared, but also we have some spoken word, we have some sound healing, we have a variety of performances. And what we really wanted to do was not only feature local performance art, but also encourage locals to get more involved in expressing themselves. And I think this was just a, a bridge, you know, I was, I was trying to start, you know, a small dance troupe, but I, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty busy person. <laughs> uh, um, so when Sylvana came along and was, you know, looking into starting performing again and getting her folks going, um, it just, it just saw such a beautiful opportunity there to team up with her and and get this get this manifested instead of just you know talking about it. So um, I appreciate her and I just appreciate all the dancers who are um, gracious enough to show up and 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 give up their their expression and their heart. And we just really hope it's it's a means for not only the queer community to be feel seen and heard, um, but for expression. The you know this. The world, the world has been through a lot in the last couple of years, and just to just to hopefully get an avenue for for folks to find ways to um, connect with themselves and connect with their community and and fortify. You know, can you say more about that? About the power of the arts to help us um, navigate this, uh, what we've been through, help us process what we've been through, and and help us to position ourselves for whatever comes next. Well, there's been many, of course, many angles we've been hit as 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 a global society, and then when we come come on the the microcosm of our our tower community, um, we've dealt with a lot. And and I think it, you know, in a nutshell, what I say often is the language of the oppressor is to steal our joy. And there are many ways to resist. I am also involved in a lot of community work, but that's another conversation. Um, but in this in this avenue through this this space. Um, I just find it really important to fortify ourselves and our communities in ways that are, you know, no one can take away. No one can take away your, your self-expression. No one can take away your heart and soul and how you communicate that to the world. And I just, it, it, in any way I can support that, you know, um, I'm, I'm more than stoked to. So that in a nutshell, that's it. You know, I just think it's really important for us to be able to to work through these things and have con these conversations with ourselves in terms of how we how we express and how you know everyone is an artist in my opinion you know we just have different ways of expressing it and different levels of appreciation of our own art. Sylvana it has to be a really powerful thing for you to be able to be back in community and you know to be uh, performing with others again. It's incredibly powerful. You know, um, dancing and art has saved my life more than once. And something that I think we all felt through the pandemic was grief and loss for human connection and expression and um, being seen and being heard and being witnessed and having our voices um, valued. And so to have the opportunity to reconnect and have um, that exchange of energy that um, that only occurs in a performance art setting or in a real-time expressive setting is just, it's irreplaceable and it means so much to me, absolutely. You know, Alicia, you have been part of the arts community. You're part of the local arts community and um, I could imagine, you mentioned many of the struggles that the Tower District has faced. You know, we've talked about the pandemic, but um, I, I'd be curious to hear more about your thoughts of you know, what it's like to be an artist, to be a creative in, in a place like the Central Valley. Well, I grew up in Fresno and then I moved to LA for a good chunk of time. And then I moved back about five, six years ago. And what I saw here was just so, you know, of course, the, when I got back, I mean, I, I also do fire performance and do other types of things. And so I immediately tried to immerse myself in that for my own healing. Um, I had, I was going through a lot of personal things at the time. And I think uh, you know, there's as a saying among some friends, Fresno is going to Fresno, you know, um, it's sometimes it's hard to get people on board with things that are new and fresh and, and, and maybe not what they're used to. Um, but then all at the same time, paradoxically enough, there's a bit of 
of a thirst for it. So it's just tapping into that and sustaining these things. It's super important because we're not, you know, some in a lot of ways we act like a small town, but we're really not. You know, we're like, I, I believe at this point, the fifth largest city in the state. So, I mean, we have we have people interested. And I, you know, as I move about in in different communities and circles, like I always run across people who are excited about something different, you know, even if it's just an exhibit at Art Hop or a, a, a show or, or an idea they have. And I just think being, making that accessible is, is massive because I think there's this idea along, you know, among uh, people that, you know, oh, that's cool, but I could never do it. And I, I, I really think, oh, that's cool, but I can do it is just a gateway for people to be able to express. And I, and there's a lot of locals I've looked up to and dealt with, and, and you know, I, you know, a friend of mine, um, Ome, that ran Dulce up front. She, uh, they um, used to do a lot of community-based events, and that was really inspiring. And I just thought making and things, making things accessible to the youth, and and things along those lines, and many others in the community have inspired me to to really try to make the arts a regular and growing and and fruitful thing that that we that we tap into not just when we have time for it or when we've done everything else. I mean, I'm, I'm a scientist by day, so <laughs> I have a day job. So um, this is a way for us to, to strengthen ourselves. And I, as long as we can make that more accessible to the community, you know, that's, that's the goal. Well, and then before I let you go, what are the logistics that folks need to know if they uh, want to attend the performance on Saturday? So there is a, an Eventbrite link for tickets. Uh, you can search True Colors Fresno on Eventbrite should be one of the first things to pop up. Um, you'll see it at, at the venue, the Labyrinth Art Collective. It's $15 a ticket. Um, it is a fundraiser for the space, so you are donating to a good cause. Um, and and um, we are requiring guests to be vaccinated. Um, and you know, if you can't show proof, we'd, we'd require a mask. Uh, we recommend a mask. Um, indoors anyhow it's a, it is a small venue so um, and then come in enjoy yourself um, and it's it's going to be a very hopefully interactive hard exchange performance and we just are excited to share that with everyone and I hope I didn't forget anything Sylvana if I did please add <laughs> no I think you got it all just search for us on Eventbrite look for the beautiful colorful flyer that Alicia made Great. Well, I've been talking with Sylvana, Celeste, and Alicia Rodriguez with the Labyrinth Art Collective in Fresno. Thank you both so much for being on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. And that's today's Valley Edition. You can hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You can also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org/health-equity.